Movie Victory. And welcome to another exciting episode of Movie Victory. Here's me, oh, your host. You have David you have Victory. Your own music. Yeah. Okay, well, I have the music from the movie, so. Yeah, I didn't know you were going to start with that. I thought, you know, we talked that I, I was going to do we the We should really prepare would, these things better. I would do the openings, and then you could do your own opening, but we're at the beginning of the show, which. Well, it seems own. like we both did our own opening. Okay, let's just, alright, let's just start over. We'll just cut this out. Alright, you just turn that off, and then I'll play a little bit more of my intro music here. Alright, here we go. Well, I think I think the Vertigo music works really well, actually. Okay. And welcome to another exciting episode of Movie Victory. The only scientific movie podcast um okay. available to listen to or consume in any form really um i'm your host david victory um here we got another exciting movie to talk about alfred hitchcock's vertigo and uh, vertigo Vert i'm your guest huey pig <laughs> yeah i was i was gonna introduce you um you didn't have to oh, go ahead. Okay. okay yeah and um with me as always is the guest host huey jpeg welcome huey Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, what was that music that you just used? I was using Bernard Herrmann. I was using Bernard Herrmann's original score for Vertigo. What was that classical piece that you were just playing? Um, it was kind of nice. I'm not going to lie, but it has nothing to do with the movie. Yeah, it's nothing to do with the movie. It's um, for the show. It's called Life in Pieces by Howard Harper. So yeah, I thought that would okay. just class up the show a little bit. Um, people know that well, we're, everybody knows that science shows use classical music, and I just thought we needed to have more classical music um, in the show. Anyway, I did send you a memo about this. Yeah, so. And you know that I can't read, um, so. You've used that excuse a lot. All right. Anyway, this movie starts Vertigo. Vertigo. Alfred Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock. A big one. Yeah. I feel like it's almost... This is a big boy. ...too much to talk about in one show, which yes. we're going to find out. It's going to be a long episode. Yeah. Or not. Maybe. <laughs> or not. Maybe not. Yeah, not enough to talk yeah. about. Yeah. No, I don't think Not that... enough that hasn't been already talked about. Yeah. I feel like they're... This is one of those movies that people have talked and written about a lot. Um, so it is... It's like what... Yeah, we're going to I feel like we'll have a different take um but uh, as we always do. Uh but yeah. All right. How do we want to start? Do you want we want to talk about the first time we've seen the movie or did you what did you I guess we didn't Sure, know. sure. I mean, is that We never actually go through the movie chronologically. So Yeah, I know you, you know. want to do that and we can do that certainly. Um so we could should we just start by just going through the movie chronologically? No. I like your idea of uh, just to kind of open it up our our relationship with the movie and our history with it, that kind of thing. All right, what's yours? Um, I mean, I could go first. What I feel like you should go first, though. I feel like you should go first. I should go first. All right, I, I have no problem. Uh, I I don't. I know I saw this movie when I was younger. I don't really remember having a strong reaction to it, though. I probably got it like at the library. I imagine a VHS copy and watched it when I was watching a lot of the. Uh, more popular Hitchcock movies that I hadn't seen yet. Um, this wasn't one that stuck out in my in my mind, but it is one that you know people love. And um, anyway, many years later, my wife 
of many years has told me that this is one of her favorite films, if not her favorite film. And um, mm. one year, uh, many years ago now, <laughs> I don't know, it sounds like I have no concept of time because I don't really, it, it seems like this happened recently, but this was probably like five years ago. Um, I think for Valentine's Day or so, something like that, I bought her a huge Vertigo poster and the Blu-ray and I watched mm -hmm. it with her and I hadn't seen it forever and I was just blown away. And um, mm. I remember immediately re-watching the end with the commentary on because I was just like, I wanted to hear what somebody else would say about what that ending um, meant. Mm -hmm. And then I watched a lot of the featurettes um, and learned about the restoration of the movie. And I was just like, oh, no wonder, you know, the VHS copy didn't blow me away, you know, compared to this mm -hmm. where all of the, the vivid colors are on full display in this mm -hmm. restoration. Um, which the Blu-ray is gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Where I think this is Paramount, uh, but they've been doing a great job of restoring their Universal. Is it Universal? Okay. Universal. Okay. Well, they've been doing a great job of restoring their classic films, and um, this this is an example of something that just looks. Yeah, it looks great. And yeah, I think you you told me you watched the featurette too. I just thought it was so cool how the guys then made a different version there, so that you know if technology mm -hmm. progresses, then it can be restored again, and you know. Right. And you could see their own Foley. I thought was really interesting that yeah. they redid the Foley art sound for it yep. to Hitchcock's notes, which is great. Yep, they they basically used the original recording of the score and probably had to rescore some of it, and then um, added their own Foley on top of it. And um, you know, I would say worth it because the the amazing it, it's flawless. It it makes this film mm -hmm. a film that was already good, um, but the problem, as anybody would know. Um, with film and the way that it was kept up in the in this time period, you know, it's a hit or miss, and you could have a classic mm -hmm. film get lost or really be unrestorable. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you watch a VHS copy of this, you'll know what I'm talking about. Like, it just it's, it doesn't look good at all, and um, the sound is just not very dimensional and kind of crackly, and you know, it's not great. Um, but mm -hmm. when people saw it in the theater, it would have been closer to what we saw. Um, but I think we probably got the best version of this movie, which is kind of crazy. Like with some of these classic films, it's like Touch of Evil. I always think about when they restored that. I was like, this is the best version <laughs> of this movie that's ever been available. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of a crazy concept. Yeah, I think that's just going to keep happening you know thankfully yeah which is great yeah. yeah i mean they were able to do the other side of the wind which we haven't really talked about a lot but i thought that was just awesome how they were able to restore that orson welles film and having to redo a lot of the dialogue i mean that was just a monster project to to take on did we talk about this where john houston's son does a lot of the the audio for his dad because they sound so similar when they added the the audio for that film yeah did well, did you have a question <laughs> No, I was, I was just saying, I was like, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I was like, I feel like it's just a fascinating thing. I think with the, the other side of the wind is the most I've ever seen anyone do to restore something. Um, but this one was, mm. that's the only reason I was bringing it up. Painstakingly. You have to hire restored. actors to redo the dialogue is, you know, extra levels. Yeah. My relationship to this movie is similar, but, you know, sort of same, same, but different. Where I certainly saw it when I was younger late teens, early 20s, when I went through that sort of Hitchcock phase of being like, oh, wow, this guy is really great and pretty consistent. And so, yeah, watched, you know, dozen or maybe 20 of his movies over the course of whatever, a couple years. 
uh, and this was certainly one of them. And although I don't remember the first time I saw it, although it was certainly on DVD, not VHS, I remember being absolutely startled by the ending. Like, I know that the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, this is a this is a pretty good one. But I had also been watching a bunch of Hitchcock at the time and sort of like studying it. And so when I got around to Vertigo, in whatever order I was watching things, probably, like you said, whatever order they came at the library when I was requesting them. And along that way, I found Vertigo and don't really remember how I felt about it at all, except for the ending. Like, I remember distinctly, you might even remember I, I had that that weird house in Crestwood and I lived in, in the basement of that house. Yeah, I remember yeah. that house. Yeah, yeah, and I like painted on the walls of that house, yeah. And Honeywood was the street, Honeywood. Okay. And uh, I remember distinctly, because that was the first time I got a job at the library, that was post-Hollywood video, then I worked at the library. That was part of where I had like a, a Hitchcock and sort of a Lynch phase. I remember I watched all of Twin Peaks during that era too and i had to get them from the library i was like getting vhs's of twin peaks and watching them at the same time that i was consuming a bunch of hitchcock which i was very young at the time i'd have been 22 i think 22 23 and i don't remember how i felt about vertigo i do remember when the ending hit it hit me it punched me in the face and i always remember that last image and that that feeling you get in your gut when the ending of Vertigo happens, it's, it's which I'm scary. sure we'll talk about later. It's, it's, it's scary. It's, it's horrifying. It's it's devastating. It's, and yeah. the, the psychological implications that he just leaves you with, like the movie just ends, and then you are just dumped into this... Well, well, we'll get around to that later. Anyway, that's my relationship with Vertigo, is the first time I saw it, I don't really remember, I might have been high or something, but I remember the ending fucked me up. And... I probably went years, probably a good decade, because I don't remember having a particular fondness for it when I lived in New York, which was most of my 20s, or the latter half of my 20s. And then at some point, living in California, because as we've talked about before, when you live in LA or San Francisco or New York, there's a lot of repertory movies, and they sort of play the classics, and you sort of get an opportunity to see the big classic movies maybe once a year. And Vertigo played here in California at some point. And I was like, oh, I haven't seen it in a long time. And I went and saw it. And it just blew my mind. I mean, I had another, you know, 10 years of watching and sort of studying film at that point. And I saw it in the theater and was just blown away. Just like magnificent. And I couldn't believe it. And since then, I've seen it every time I got the chance in the theater. Even once recently, a couple months ago, I think. Yeah, I love it. It's easily my favorite Hitchcock for numerous reasons I'm sure we're about to talk about. So yeah, short version is I was a stoned, not going to college person watching Hitchcock and Lynch in my basement and don't remember much of Vertigo except for the ending just absolutely mortified me. I feel like a lot of this is just showing how great libraries are. I mean, I probably mm -hmm. watched it first at the library. You did. Sarah did. I mean, because she just mm -hmm. didn't have TV, so she's just watching all the old Hitchcocks and really gravitated towards this one as a child, which is because it's not a kid's movie. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's one of the darker Hitchcocks, which is saying something because yeah. Hitchcock is pretty dark. Uh, I would say, but, is it the darkest? I mean, Psycho is pretty dark. I don't know. Uh, Psychologically. Yeah. 
Psychos might be darker, but I don't know. I would agree anyway, with you, though. Uh, it is my favorite um, Hitchcock movie. Um, I, I used to always think, you know, Rope is. I still like Rope a lot. There's, rope is great. Rope is, a, rope is also super dark. Yes, Rope is super dark, but there's just so many different things that I really like that are well done in Rope. Um, I feel like that mm-hmm. movie is a more... It's the only Hitchcock that I can really name that really depends a lot on the actors. I mean, the actors carry hmm. that because he's not doing well, a lot of Because it was a camera. play... Yeah, it was a play first, um, sure. But he had some other ones that were plays first. But he, I don't think, yeah. maybe Lifeboat. I'm just now. I'm trying to think some of the older ones. It's like, but that one, yeah, you do have the the actors really carrying a lot of the weight of um, what's happening, and him just not getting in the way, really just showing everything that right. you need to in a very minimalistic approach. It's because he has to do those ten minute takes, you know. Yeah. So although it seems like there's not a lot of cam work to do, there actually is. It's just a long. Uh, it's a sustained camera work, right? Instead of a bunch of cuts. Um, yeah, no. I'm... But also the editing in this film is amazing. Right. <laughs> Good editing. <laughs> Are we going to go chronologically through it? Okay, let's go see. Sure, let's go see sure. my scene. Maybe we'll have an easier time. Okay. Or or not. I feel like but we never. We, uh, we're going to just switch formats. Should we go through the plot of what, this movie? Do you think any of our list? I mean, that could be interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we would have had to be better prepared to really go through it chronologically. Uh, I mean, let's face it. It, op- let's... it opens with the title sequence, which is great. The Saul Bass titles. And then it opens in the classic Hitchcock way of, like, you see a ladder and then a hand reaches up and grabs the ladder. So it starts, you know, in media res, in the middle of things. Uh, it starts and there's already action happening, right? So that's the beginning of the movie. <laughs> All right. I feel like just watching it would have been quicker, but uh, uh, thanks for starting us out strong there. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a guy uh, that used to be a detective. So little of this film makes any sense. And so I'm, I'm giggling because I'm, like, going through the plot of it, and I'm already just thinking of the the ridiculous nature of like every character and their backstories and i'm sure we'll talk about it more and that's almost why i'm like i don't know how much is, i will i have one spot of the commentary i want to play for sure but he talks about like the dreamlike and i um william freaking does the commentary and he specifically compares it to edgar al poe which i thought was great which he's like hitchcock loved Poe a lot as a child and so the logic of this film this um, film is very much like a Poe short story where it doesn't have a lot of logic, but you believe it in the scene. You know, it's just as it's happening. As it's happening, you know, it's this dreamlike logic. So that's why it's like even to start talking about it. I'm like, um, there's this guy that used to be a detective that wanted to be a lawyer that has vertigo and it's been so he can't be a detective anymore. And so then this other guy decides to get him to follow his wife because he thinks that she's crazy and then it turns out that she commits suicide and then he is obsessed with her finds someone else that kind of looks like her or looks exactly like her because it is her and then he obsessively tries to get her to look like the other girl and then she dies the end I'm like I, I don't know. Right. Yeah. That, that's, All right. Let me let me that's, try. That's Hold the on. movie, but it's like you hear that and that's like what? And I'm like, yeah, that's that's this yeah. movie. Yeah. And okay. I, and uh, I didn't even mention that. one of my favorite characters, Meg. Love Meg. Midge. Midge. You're right. I Midge, said Meg. Meg. Midge. You're, you're right. Yeah. It's it's Midge. Um, 
Maybe my least favorite character. I think Midge is a creep. I love Midge. I feel like, but, uh, I feel she's, like... There's, there's, we can have a lot of sympathy for Midge. I'm just like, but... how did they meet in college? All right. Well, what are the lines? I feel like what are the, I just die laughing as I was watching it. Is like right at the beginning of that opening sequence where it's like, it's it's great because we have the the running and it looks like Jimmy Stewart's character is gonna die and then it just cuts. Doesn't show us what happens after. Yeah, he, yeah, he's it, fine. He has a broken foot, I think, or something. Yeah, he's got a. Cane. He has a cane. He's got a, he cane. a cane. We don't really. But then he's hanging out with this woman that looks, you know, much younger than her. She's 14 years younger than him. Her. I looked it up just to see. It's not as big of an age difference between him and Kim Novak, which is 25 years. Um, but just 14 between her. But I thought she looked even younger. She's 35, but I would have guessed she would have been still like in her mid 20s. Well, that's because Kim Novak very much looks like a woman, and Midge is made to look more childish. Well, I, I thought Kim Novak was in her mid 20s for sure. I mean, I didn't think she looked old. Oh, I didn't that. think that at all. Oh, really? Okay. I, well, I thought she was like 30. But I don't know how old she is in the movie. She's 25. It, but she's, yeah. She, no, she's 24, excuse me, because he's 25 years older than her. And he was 49. Um, and anyway, so, it doesn't matter. Uh, anybody of any age can fall in love. Uh, sure, but the but di- Kim the, Novak, the dialogue of that scene where it's like, we got engaged. Don't you remember we in got college. In, in college? And I'm just like, they went to college together. It's like, how did this happen? And then, well, you're, lot- you're assuming that people are all the same age that go to college. Well, that's not most true. of them, most of them are. But then the line after that, where it's like. He acts like he's forgot about it. Like it's just like a car that he used to own. Oh yeah, we got engaged. Like oh, I used to own a Buick. Yeah, I remember that. And then he's like, and you broke it off. And we don't mm-hmm. ever find out why she broke it off, and because she's clearly still obsessed with him. You know. Yes. <laughs> but that that light always just is. Oh, we went to college together. And we were engaged. Just like the way that that information is. Well, it makes it also yeah. seem like it was a very long time ago. Yeah. Is why he says it like, like that. Like, yeah, it does. But they've um, been best friends ever since. Mm hmm. And that happens with some people. Um, I'm going to try to do a rundown that makes it sound less absurd. By all means. Jimmy Stewart plays a detective who has vertigo. Learns he has vertigo while on the job because someone hopping on rooftops, someone dies, falling. Uh, he is then stripped of his detectiveness and is dealing with his vertigo with his friend Midge, who they knew from college. A man from his past tries to hire him as a private detective to follow his wife, who is having some sort of strange, almost supernatural relationship with a dead woman. As if the dead woman is possessing her uh, and pushing her towards suicide. During the process of being a private detective and following this woman, uh, Jimmy Stewart falls in love with her and she with him. This unfortunately leads to a tragedy where Jimmy Stewart's vertigo prevents him from saving her life when she commits suicide. Uh, There's then a very brutal trial sequence where the judge is very rude to Jimmy Stewart and uh, seems to place the blame. And it's legally ruled as a suicide. But wait, then he meets a woman 
that looks exactly like her because it is her, albeit now with brown instead of blonde hair and a different outfit. And he, completely obsessed, both with his love for her and with trying to solve the mystery, which is something that doesn't get talked about a lot, I think, is like his detectiveness is pushing him forward to try to figure this out. And he discovers that it is in fact her. He takes her back to the scene of the crime and revisits the traumatic event that he experienced. I tried to ground it a little more in reality, but uh, and it turns out he got he got duped. They use he used his vertigo against him uh, in order to murder this guy's wife. It is hard to explain, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? You think, and then it's, it, a, it's a weird yarn. And that then they the weave. guy, it is. Uh, but I feel like that Edgar Allan comparison works for me. I'm like that is. It's like sit down and try to explain the red, the like the mass death or. And he opposed right. It's like, yeah, you're just, it's kind of like, what? And this guy, or like the Telltale Heart, or just something like that, where it's just like you have these weird stories right. of these people. And um, it's like a pretzel. I mean, it, it folds back in on itself. It's like, I mean, this movie doesn't even really start until like 45 minutes in when Scotty finally meets her. By the way, Jimmy Stewart's character's name is John, but he is called both Johnny O and Scotty. Yeah. One, one thing one thing that I find very strange about this movie is everyone every character has more than one name. Midge is short for Marjorie. Johnny is also Johnny O, but everyone calls him Scotty for some reason. Uh, Madeline is possessed by Carlotta, but her name is actually Judy. Everyone has multiple names. Did you notice this? It's very odd. Most movies don't do that. <laughs> I guess uh, I guess I'm just trying to think the husband. Uh, does he have a name? I don't. I don't I, even know his name. I feel like you called. I just to go back to your description. You calling that what happened a a trial? I think is interesting because I'm like, we're not in. A, I don't know what that was. I know. I know. Every time I see, and this this is a Hitchcock thing though, because in some of his other movies too, um, I will specifically mm-hmm. cite. I think it's North by Northwest where he gets like accused of murder and then the trial's like over in like five or ten minutes yeah like there's the weird... end of psycho where he... they explain everything to you yeah the, he has some yeah. weird trial stuff that happens and i'm just like what in and the it's always just in like room? an empty room yeah i'm like that's not it's never in a courtroom our courtrooms <laughs> i know the one in this movie which it's crazy how much that is kind of off about this movie, but it's still really a perfect movie and an amazing movie. I mean, even Hitchcock. Well, there's is the like... dreamlike thing. Right. The dreamlike thing allows so many different fantasy elements to be at play. Yeah. Which we can get into later. Yeah, for sure. I guess the only thing I was going to say, even Hitchcock was like, yeah, I, uh, Jimmy Stewart was too old um, for this role. Um, but I would agree that just with everything being the dream logic, you it doesn't bother you. You go there with them um, regardless. It's fine. And I would say one of the one of the things that I want to say up front as the what I think makes this movie work a lot is the uh, costume design. Edith Hurd is the yes. person who did that. Head. Head. Edith thank Head. You. Yes. Thank you. Excuse me. Edith. Edith Head. Um, but she does this costumes look just amazing they're all gorgeous and they in every sequence they give you something really to look at and um yeah i I mean for me when i watch this movie i'm looking so much at the the 
the way everyone's dressed, the way everybody's hair is done, and then the rooms. Like, I love Eddie's. Like, Eddie's just looks mm-hmm. so with cool. Like, the red, the red yeah. felt, the, like, the red velvet walls, yeah, whatever I, that is. Right. And it's the only place we go to. They're always going to Eddie's. But every mm-hmm. time I go there, I'm like, oh, yeah, let's go to Eddie's again. Let's, you know, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also, like, the perfect contrast to her green dress. Right. The, the green over red really pops visually. So there's the the famous gray dress, but then in the first sequence, um, she's, she's wearing the green dress, and yeah, she's just you uh, know I think such a knockout. I'm just gonna when she walks. I'm gonna yeah exactly yeah exactly. She's a knockout. I'm gonna put this out there. Of all the Hitchcock women, the femme fatales and the heroines, Kim Novak for me, bar none. I mean, such a babe, but like, but there's I have such a level of respect. For Kim Novak's very restrained and weird performance, like she has to, she has to one pretend to be a woman who is pretending to be someone's wife, who is pretending to be possessed by a dead woman, right? And then she has to pretend to be the woman who did all that, and not know that she did all that. I mean, there's so many really interesting, strange layers that you never find in any other character in fiction or movies uh that kim novak just with total grace and like this very weird vibe but a vibe that's still alluring it's it's odd it's off-putting but it's not and she finds this like perfect balance of restraint uh in her the whole movie in her performance and no matter what's happening no matter how much you know or don't yet know about her character there's such a level of like grace that she does it and i think she's just i love kim novak in this film i mean i'm i'm i fall in love with her every time while scotty does every time i watch it despite knowing everything that's going on uh unlike scotty um so yeah i just want to do shout out to kim novak who's oh, yeah just she's... a miracle performance in this she is she is great did you know that she is not hitchcock's first choice for this film i don't know if you knew this. and neither was jimmy stewart um, who did he want besides Jimmy Stewart? Vera Miles and there was somebody I forget. The I dude. know Vera Miles for Kim Novak, but I haven't heard that about Jimmy Stewart. Um, it was in the featurette. Uh, I don't remember. Well, um, I guess I anyway. bring that up to be like, this is one of those films that I think works because you have a lot of people working at a certain level of um, excellence. Like I think a lot of times it's in a film like this, you can give Hitchcock a lot of credit. But in a film, I think it's a lot of things working together is what makes this film. I mean, a lot of Hitchcock's film is a collaborative effort. Um, but I would sure. say that this film, it's just all these kind of happy accidents. And I think that's one of them with Kim Novak getting to play um, the yeah. lead. Uh, but uh, the, like also the just the set pieces in this i just think are so fascinating with the featurette i think talked a little bit about how hitchcock did not like to shoot um you know on on location on location so everything you see in this film is pretty much a set you know he, he shot the location shots and then did all the close-ups on the set version even the tower yeah even, even the, the staircase ta- i which i did not know that i did one. not know that the tower and the staircase where the main dramatic event happens twice I had no idea that was a set. 
It's interesting too ridiculous. that the tower is not even there in the original location anymore, but it I was. Know. It was, yeah. And so I thought that was so interesting too. And then to get the shot the way he did, the way he turned it, they had to make mm -hmm. a version of it, a smaller version that they could shoot around too, which kind of reminded me of like a lot of what uh, like Steven Spielberg did with like the Indiana Jones movies, or I guess the Star Wars movies kind of do the same thing where you have, or Kubrick did um, too with. 2001. 2001 yeah so I, I guess i was just like this is I, still ahead of its time it's a it's a way that became the practical way to do it i guess really for the next few decades really is, is right. how people um yeah vertigo is a couple of years before 2001 right yeah i mean isn't yeah. oh, i would have to look it up but 1960 I, I think yeah, yeah. so yeah so um, right around that same time though um but uh that's just something Ah, oh, that, that was something I didn't know about Hitchcock either, that he never looks in the camera. I was just like, what? Really? <laughs> he never looks in the right, camera? Right. It's uh, all in his head. It's all in his... Yeah, exactly. He's got everything laid out. And, um, yeah, so... Well, I mean, that shows anyway, you that he has such a... A trust for the has, team that he's working with. Yeah. Well, no, it also shows you he has such a strong uh, visual imagination that he knows, oh, I may be sitting here five feet to the left of the camera, but I can imagine based on where the camera's at and the angle it's pointing, I know what it looks like. And also his visual imagination because he drew all the storyboards and is very exacting about how things are going to look before they even get to set, right? So I think he, yeah, he's a walking camera, that guy. He, he knows, he doesn't have to look in it. He can, he can imagine it very strongly. He is one of the directors that is somewhat of an artist as well. Um, I guess you see this with a lot of other directors too, where they they can do their own storyboards and and are. I would say he's more of that than a photographer. Where I do think you got, you kind of have some directors that are the photographers, where he is more of a of a yeah he can draw. Um, <clears throat> and so yeah, absolutely. He, I thought that one of the more interesting ones that it showed in the featurette was that one scene where it's like now they made like a painting out of it where they're talking in that lobby. I thought that was a that was an interesting to just to see him how he did that sketch. Um, yeah, he's got it. He does have an interesting process. I tried to send you because I do think it's interesting how much his wife has been involved in all of his films. Yeah, I watched it. Yeah, I just, she doesn't get a lot of credit, and um, I just think that that's awesome how much she helped him. I do think it's just rare for any uh, man to give their wives this much credit in real life. The only examples I know are of Tom Waits and Jim Gaffigan. I'm curious if you know some other ones, but Tom Waits credits his wife on his songs now, like for the, <laughs> Crystal Waits is, is listed on the same line for for pretty much every new song he does, it's Tom and Crystal Waits. And uh, Jim Gaffigan lists his wife as the co-writer on everything he does. Um, I do think it's more common, though, than people want to admit how much they work with their wives as a real team. And so it was just another fascinating insight that, like, yeah. how a film like this can get made. And, yeah, who knows? Maybe later on he would give her more credit. I don't know. Um, but The only couple I can think of is Charles and Ray Eames who made furniture and were artists and also made some really interesting films together. Uh, they were like a good creative couple, creative marriage. But as for the movie, one thing that always sort of brings me back in, no matter how many times I've seen it, whether I'm watching it at home or if it's playing in a theater, is there's something I love about just the driving around. After Scotty gets hired, 
to follow this woman. He's being a private detective and he's following her as she goes to these strange, strange places in San Francisco, uh, ostensibly possessed by this woman, going to these places that this woman used to. And there's something I love about just him driving around. And not not the stalking, uh, but the feeling of being in a car uh, in a movie. And there's something I just, I love that. Uh, the the sort of slow roll up and down the hill and like the, the eye line, like seeing the POV of Scotty as he drives and, you know, passing by these pedestrians that he'll never see. There's something like really relaxing to me. And of course the score goes really beautifully with it also. Actually, I'll just pull it up. So Scotty's just driving around San Francisco and with this very romantic music playing as he's tailing this woman. And I don't know, there's something about the driving sequences that are really like hypnotic to me in a weird way. And they shouldn't be, they're, they're fairly, any other movie where somebody's just driving around for three and a half minutes, seems like it would be awfully boring. But for whatever reason, I'm just absolutely like lulled into the movie during those parts. Uh, I don't know how you feel about the driving around San Francisco, but that's one of the things that really always like brings me back into the movie. The driving force for me in the film is this sense of anxiety of like just not really knowing how to feel complete almost. And so when you have him wandering and him being aimless, like I just see that's just to me that's important. Um, I mean, you could just say, oh, it's a metaphor for like how he feels. And it's like, yeah, that's true, too. Um, but also yeah. there's this anxiety about driving, too, that you see. It's like he like he needs to drive. He wants to drive. We have to go somewhere, you know, and then, then we're there. And it's like right. kind of like, ah, oh, we're there. And um, but, you know, when he gets worked up about something, um, he needs to drive. He needs to go somewhere when he finds her. There's mm -hmm. the, the driving is. It's a compulsion. I would almost say the it's way it's almost that... like he he does drive to let off steam a little bit too. Although I wouldn't say it's aimless because he is following her. I mean, she's the aim, right? But after you know, they a... like, okay, I guess I'm talking about it's like they have the conversation and he's like, "What do you do?" It's like, "Oh, I just drive around. I don't do anything." And then they're like, "Oh, we let's let's kind of be aimless together." And it's like, "Oh, if we're aimless together, then we're we have to go somewhere specific." And then they have the whole conversation. So right, I, I right. guess that, you're right. He is following her. But why is he following her? Why did he even agree to do this? And I guess the motives to do it, I'm like, he's doing this for such, like, you know, what? It, he doesn't have anything well, else to do, you know? That's I, because of Ernie's, yeah. Right, he's, yeah. He's, essentially, he's essentially retired, but there's an answer to that question, which does float around in your head of, like, well, wait, why is he doing this if he's retired and he has vertigo and all this? And he's doing this because the guy who's hiring him uh, who he initially refuses, and he says, listen, I don't know, there's somebody else that can do it. And he says, no, I want you to do it. And he just goes, listen, we're going to go to dinner at Ernie's tonight just so you can get a look at her. And that's the moment. I mean, one of the most beautiful cuts, like edits in the movie, is while she's wearing that beautiful green dress against the red velvet background, and you just see her profile, right? And there's a cut to Jimmy Stewart's profile and he turns away and it's just this beautiful movement of her coming right into the middle of the frame her profile cut to Jimmy Stewart already 
in the middle of the frame and then he turns away almost like shy or almost like so bewildered by her beauty that he, he has to look away from it i mean that's the moment where he decides to take the case i think oh yeah i mean i i agree absolutely with you i would say that i don't know if he would admit that to himself at that point yeah be fair because we know that we know that <laughs> and it is kind of like shouldn't you be questioning this guy where he's just like uh you say that about now but wait till you check out how hot my wife is maybe then you'll want to follow <laughs> right. her around who's not his wife yeah, who's actually yeah who's now, actually an actress playing his wife right well yeah. we know but at the time we're under the impression that he's like wait till you take a look at her i'm just and then his whole reaching out to him and i feel like there were so many questions he should have had about this guy he's like so this guy decided to i mean can you imagine in your life now that you have somebody mm -hmm. from high school um or maybe you know early college, college whatever whatever your time period you knew that they reach out to you now i mean you're not even their age this would be like 15 20 years you haven't spoken to them in 20 years at least if mm -hmm. not 30 years and they're like so i think my wife is possessed and uh, well i mean i don't know if you're a private detective <laughs> and somebody from your past reaches out because they're you're the only person they know who is a private detective that makes a little sense and he even says like i wouldn't because it's such a weird situation i think my wife is haunted by a ghost you know that's embarrassing to have to admit I need somebody that I s at least sort of know and can trust to do this. I mean, this guy who's hiring him, whose name I forget, because he's a pretty much a side character, even though he drives the entire plot. I mean, he is the antagonist. He's the bad guy. But he's so peripheral that we forget about him. I mean, case in point, I forgot his character's name even. Because he's just, he's almost a MacGuffin. But he's really the villain. When you think about it, I mean, he's the guy who's murdering his wife. He's the guy who's essentially gaslighting Scotty with this actress, uh, using his fear of heights against him and to his benefit, right? I mean, this guy's the villain, right? But he so doesn't matter to the story, despite being the driving force for everything happening. Uh, because it is much, I think, the film is more of a romance than it is a thriller, or at least they're on, on equal ground. You know, it's such a romantic movie. I was curious if you would find this romantic, this film. I mean, it's considered a romantic thriller. Okay. The music is certainly romantic. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. There's, at is it is it one of a is it is it a romance of an obsessive toxic love? Yes. Towards the end, at least last half hour, but that's because it's all based on a lie. Well, that's the right. whole thing. It's like, how do they even know each other at all? Like, he's obsessed with this character that she was, that she was pretending, you know. So there's right. these But you also have to remember, she fell in love with him, too. Let's not forget that when he meets Judy, which is Madeline's real name, when he finally meets her after the fake death and all this stuff, uh, well, fake suicide, real murder, he meets Judy... And then she sits down to write him a letter, which she tears up. But it's a beautiful letter of like, you know, falling in love with you wasn't part of the plan. Everything was planned out so perfectly. And I fell in love and I'm a fool, right? And so I think the reason that like categorically 
despite the many toxic elements that are involved in their relationship, that it's categorically a romance, not just because of the beautiful music, but because when they're near each other, they have this magnetic attraction. Like, you can feel it when they... I mean, there's even the moment in the movie where they kiss in front of... and, like, the waves of the ocean crash behind them, which is such a movie thing, such a movie moment. And... Yeah, I think it's inarguably a romantic thriller. Okay, this is, I, this is actually... Okay, you finish your point, but this is actually part of the where I wanted to play the commentary, is, is, that, oh, yeah. is that sequence. And then the other kiss, by the way, I want to bring up later too, where they, the camera spins around them as they kiss, and then you see Scotty's imagination. Anyway, we'll get to that. No, the point I was just trying to make is... I mean, you said you were, I, you were wondering if I was going to consider this movie a romance, right? Uh, I don't see how you could not. I, I'm just curious to how you define it as a romance, and you've explained that um, to me. Two people fall in love. Okay. Yeah, that happens. Uh, and that is the that's the core of the film is like these two people's, despite the ridiculousness and the nefariousness of how they came together, they still have an undeniable magnetic pull towards each other despite knowing the like doomed circumstances of how they came together which i think is most telling when she writes him the letter that she tore up i mean that's when you really find out oh she's not just an actress you know a con artist trying to pull one over on him she's a hired hand who accidentally wasn't supposed to catch feelings for this man who they were swindling, essentially. Um, and I think that's another credit to Kim Novak's performance, is that she's able to convey that she desperately wants something of that connection, that something feels real to both of them, even if it's based on a lie, that there's, there's some depth to their connection. And she says something at the very beginning of the letter that I always think is a really great line, uh, she says, Scotty, this is the moment I'd always dreaded and hoped for. Right? And so there's that paradoxical element of the romance, of the doomed romance, right? Of, we know this isn't going to go well, but we want to do it anyway because we're both feeling so much when we're near each other. Right? That's why, to me, the romance is undeniable. Because despite the fact that you know, by modern day vocabulary, uh, Scotty's obsession is, by all accounts, a toxic, compulsive, and completely all, uh, borderline psychotic by the end of the film, uh, where he's literally trying to reenact his own trauma with her, right? Which is something we have to talk about. Uh, but it, I think again the most telling thing is that she reciprocates that feeling and the this bond that they have despite again the ridiculousness of the scenario uh and the doomedness of it they're still absolutely drawn to one another so yeah that's, that's my view all right i'm gonna play this part of the commentary so this is the giant sequoia scene so great at this point you could be watching a dream. Your own dream. This character's dream. Everyone 
who has been captured by vertigo enters it slowly as though entering into one's own dream or nightmare. And that's what's happening to the character of Scotty, too. His movements become slower. The shots slow down. The pace. He loses Madeline only to find her again. He's drawn closer and closer to the mystery of this woman while understanding nothing about what's going on with her. He has fallen in love with a vision, possibly a vision of his own dreamlike conjure. And we begin to think about the myth of Carlotta Valdez and if, if that's really the basis for Kim Novak's breakdown, if she herself is a real person or a figment of Scotty's imagination. But again, she is this idealized woman that he can't help but be attract, both attracted to and ultimately repelled by, which is basically the story of Hitchcock's own obsession that he was so magnificently able to work out in his best films. All right, that, that's it. That's it. That's kind of the, but it's that idea of obsession that I guess I would kind of respond to and just, yeah, Hitchcock's own um, personal life of how obsession uh, affected him, like where he would get obsessed with a certain kind of woman, like you can specifically look at Tippi Hendrix and what she went through when she talks about her relationship with with Hitchcock. And I'm not, we don't have to get into the whole thing about that. But um, I guess that's why when you, and I think we're just talking about the same thing in different ways. Like when I think about this movie, I don't think about romance as much as I think about obsession um, with an idea. And I guess that's kind well, of- that's part of it. Yeah. And so that's why I'm like- I, I think, think that's the male- Yeah. Okay. Side of it. I think the male side of it, I agree. Obsession is a key element, not just in this film, but in a lot of Hitchcock, uh, but especially in this film and especially in the character of Scotty and especially in the last 45 minutes of this movie when he meets Judy and starts to try to turn her into Madeline, which is such a disturbing series of events. I mean, and you see almost like his mind slipping, right? I mean, it's like, I think this is the darkest we've ever seen Jimmy Stewart. It's like he the way that he like just in that one scene where he's questioning her <clears throat> in that intensity. I feel like that is right. the dark side that I respond to that you're talking about. And he's like that and he gets worse mm -hmm. like that when he's just like, no, your hair's still not right. And you see him and he's acting right. out in this way. That's the obsessiveness that I, I think is what a lot of people respond to of the personalness of how personal that seems the way that he expresses mm -hmm. that it's very true to real life because it's a balance you know he's not shouting he's not screaming he's but he is acting obsessed like a child you yes. know there's no easy way to say it but but it's Jimmy mm -hmm. Stewart so it's like how can you be if this was a different so, actor you would this would not be the same movie if you yeah yeah if you had an and it's because we all love Jimmy Stewart right and we want to root for him because we know at his core, both in films and in life, 
he is a sweet person. He's a genuine person, right? Uh, almost to a level of Mr. Rogers. I, if, to me, he feels like that kind of person. Like, I would trust Jimmy Stewart with my wallet. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so there's two things I want to I get at. Um, first, uh, I want to address what you said specifically, but I'll do that second. First, what I want to do is I think the, the nature of obsession in Hitchcock and in Jimmy Stewart's character in Vertigo is the more male-oriented perspective. And I think one of the things that sort of turns the corner uh, into a romance for me is like I brought up when Kim Novak writes the letter. And Kim Novak is not experiencing obsession anymore. In, in fact, she is the receiver or even the victim of uh, Jimmy Stewart's obsessive nature to turn her into this ideal, to have her become what she is not or what she pretended to be, right? But what's interesting mostly to me is the female side of this which is her desperation for it to be real or true she also has feelings for this man which are of equal value but she's not obsessed with him she's she's even mortified at the fact that she found him under her real name judy right but there's still a pull there's still she wants that feeling again of falling in love of of having the beautiful moment of kissing in front of the ocean waves, right? And so there's a desperation in her desire that I think is so, so real and so, again, a credit to her performance that she's able to pull that off. Who at the fuck? Sorry, someone is like stomping around my house. Lost my train of thought. Can you hear that? Yeah, I can hear it. I mean, it, it's fine. Um... Uh, well, anyway, the point I was trying to make is there's a desperation to her love. If if Jimmy Stewart's love is obsessive, uh, Kim Novak's love is desperate. Because she, despite knowing that she put on this ruse and, and won him over with this lie of pretending to be someone else, she w wants the fantasy to be real. And that's something that the film is about. Whether it's his idealized version of her or her wishing that they had met on different circumstances, right? There's this, they both want the fantasy to be real. That was the first point I wanted to make was that, yes, the obsessiveness is at the core of the film because Scotty's the main character, but I think there's also a female element to the, that makes it more of a romance, which I think is Kim Novak's perspective of really desperately wanting this to become true somehow, any way possible. And I think that's something that's really wonderful about the film. Now, to what you were saying, you know, we were talking about this is like the darkest we ever see Jimmy Stewart um, and his obsession. But there's also, as soon as we meet Judy, you know, the real Judy, the real Kim Novak, there's also this nagging sense of like, does he, does he know? Is he still trying to solve the mystery? Is, it, is his like detectiveness intermingling with his like tainted love for her you know uh, for me when i rewatch it now it's like jimmy stewart plays it in this way where like you see him like almost like wince every once in a while at something that she does or says and it's like his psychology is nagging at him of like wait is she is she real have i been played have i made the fool of and so he's like still trying to solve it uh but it's being toxified by his love for her and and his hate for the fact that she might have pulled one over on him, right? That this might be the same woman. 
and you know the fact that she's still alive and made a fool of him and a patsy and all this kind of stuff and so what's so tragic to me is the film the last half hour especially the ending it isn't so much like the criminal returns to the scene of the crime so much as it is like the victim recreates the familiar settings of their trauma which is what he does he forces her he even says the phrase back to the scene of the crime but that's that's a surface element what's really happening is he's the victim of the crime and he's recreating his own trauma you know so like in the vertigo we see his downward spiral and that's to me the real like psychological tragedy that has so much weight and just builds and builds and gets heavier and heavier throughout the movie so that's how I feel about how dark Jimmy Stewart is in this movie. <laughs> okay, yeah, I wasn't sure. I know you were you were, you were making a very specific point there. Um, yeah, it's definitely it's, it's definitely dark. Did you did you have four points? I felt like you were good. no. Okay, <laughs> no, just those two. Just those two. My my two my two points were like there's the feminine perspective of her desperation for the okay. fantasy to be real, which is a mirror of his obsession, and then there's the it's not really scene of the crime. It's more of a reenacting trauma thing um so. yeah i mean there are other characters are have some degree of obsession i mean obviously you have uh, midge with her obsession of the the jimmy stewart character and her following him following her um in the film which i feel like does kind of give a little bit of a female perspective of this character that feels jilted for whatever reason and now she's seeing him um, pursue someone else and she obsessively follows him follows her and then does a copy of a copy in that painting scene did you want to talk about that scene mm -hmm. i wasn't sure if that was yeah, yeah can we talk about midge let's talk about midge uh midge or marjorie i think midge is a total creep i think she's a weirdo um harmless though totally harmless but clearly is in love with jimmy stewart or wishes that he would you know recognize that and sweep her off her feet but um oh god where do you even start midge is a tragic figure who has unrequited love for johnny o everyone else calls him scotty she calls him johnny o i don't know why where the o comes from do you remember the line though where he does when he talks to Judy originally and she's like what's your name and she's he's like uh, my my name's Johnny but I go John and and she's like and she says a good strong name and she's like my and, and he says my good friends call me John and he's like my friends call me Scotty and she's like hopefully I'll call you John or there's something back there where she she says I'll call you Mr. Ferguson Mr. Goes, oh I hope you call me Scotty oh uh, I hope you call me Scotty yeah yeah which is just like okay so John is There's also a, reserved for closer. Uh, it's very confusing, his pecking order. It's purposely confusing. Yeah, for, and this is one of the things I love about the film is that friendship. every character... <laughs> got multiple names. Yeah. One of the things I like is that every... The two main characters have three names each, and then Midge also is short for Marjorie. So there's this like, shifting sense of self that's going on. Uh, there's also another really great line that I always love in that same scene you're talking about after he saves her from drowning and she says you're being very direct and he goes he goes oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to to impose and he goes she's like you're not you're merely direct and she says it in like the most just the most like sultry way and for such a weird sentence i could find it actually i'm gonna i'm gonna play it it's 48 minutes gavin is the name just 
for, for anybody who Gavin. is wondering, who is the who is the character's name? Who I always think the villain. That w- when we see him throw the body outside the window, it looks like a mm-hmm. dummy to me. Whenever they explain it as a that was the wife's body, I'm just like, really? Because the way he threw that, it just did not look very heavy. Well, the whole um, point is he cast her. He cast Kim Novak as the actress to play his wife because she looked just like his wife. That was the whole thing. But we never I, see his wife except for the corpse. I understand. From a that. I'm saying when we see him throw the body on the tower, it looks like a dummy. That's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. No, I don't know if you knew this, but this is not a documentary. This is a movie, and that's not a real dead body. I, I know it's not, a, but I'm just saying, like, in the sequence, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm okay. just saying it looks like a dummy. It doesn't look like a body. Doesn't look that it weigh like it weighs that much. I'm saying he should have acted like it weighed a lot as he threw it. So I'm sitting here thinking, oh, that's a real body. I have um, no problems with that scene. <laughs> I, know, I mean, doesn't bother me. Uh, it always for as looks... much for as many ridiculous things as there are in this film yeah, that somehow still so, work. That doesn't so bother many. me. It's only through specifically looking at it and just being like, it, yeah. But anyway. The whole concept that this was the way to kill the wife makes so little sense that this was the best he could come up with. You're, I think you're it's right. Great. It's, it's it's silly for me to complain when I'm just like yeah. he couldn't think of another way to get rid of his wife. <laughs> like he's got a I mean he's got to hire an actress then fill it and then he's just and like I mean, take his wife was... up to a up a a chapel and then right. break her neck and then throw her off while she's wearing an identical suit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It's Honey, a lot. what are we doing? What lot. are we doing? I told you to wear that dress, and we're going to the chapel. Why are we going to the? Don't talk. Don't, to don't like, worry about it. Gonna... Yeah, no, we don't no, see no. any of. That would yeah, be a very no, different no. movie if we saw what Gavin was doing. <laughs> I know. You know. I want to see. I want to see a movie from Gavin's perspective. I don't. Like, what is? What is he doing? Like he's just sitting around by himself. He's just like, I don't love my wife. That's a horror movie. I want to get, I get rid of her. No. What am I gonna do? What can I do? Uh, he also never comes back. Yeah, he doesn't come back. But yeah. I'm just like, where would he did he even get the idea? It's just like, what if she suddenly decided to commit suicide because she was she was possessed by someone else? Right. It's yeah. a weird yeah. yarn th- yeah. that is woven. He's like, let me go with that. All right. All right. Now I got something. Yep. He's hanging out with his friends, listening to pitches. All right. So she's possessed and commits suicide. Okay. How do we get something to possess? And <laughs> I know a detective who has a fear of heights. I don't know how that could help. <laughs> yeah. I'll throw that away. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, here's a, I don't know why it's one of my favorite lines. It's just the way Kim Novak delivers it. I think we're going to have to start taking turns of like what, who's going to talk about what next. Cause I think okay. we're both getting so excited about All right. different <laughs> stuff. <laughs> You're fine. But I would agree that the dialogue in general is insane at times and it just hits you because of how works. off it is. It works because of what, um, William Freakern was just saying about like the dreamlike nature mm-hmm. of the entire film. So that yeah, it's supposed to feel off. Like that's why I'm like, I guess when you were talking about what you meant by romance, I get it. But for me, like it isn't like there's this nervousness throughout the film. Like I'm feeling like on mm-hmm. edge as I watch oh, yeah. it. Like there's there's just this unresolvedness, and so that's the driving force. But yeah, play the well, clip. I'm sorry. Before the clip, you know what that makes me think of? I mentioned when, the first time I saw this, you know, when I lived in that basement, I was watching a lot of David Lynch and a lot of Hitchcock. And, of course, Lynch is influenced by Hitchcock quite a bit. Now, no, very, very few people, I think, would call Lynch movies a romance, although there are elements of that. 
but they're so surreal and dreamlike. But there is that, like in a dream, that magnetic quality of like you're being pulled toward something and it may be vaguely sensual or whatever. But yeah, the more I think about that, there's a Lynchian, Hitchcockian thing of like fear and love are kind of intertwined, right? Uh, and the uncertainty of that. So anyway, here is one of Kim Novak's lines that every time just gets me. Here, you better have some coffee. Totally direct in your questions. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be rude. No, no. You're merely direct. And then he just stares at her, and then she just stares at him. What were you doing there? He says, I didn't mean to be rude. And then in just the coolest, calm, collected way, she goes, you're not. You're merely being direct. And for some reason, I'm just like, I get the chills of this, like, nothing line. But it's, I don't know, uh, Kim Novak, I just fall in love with her every time I see this movie. I don't know what it is. She's just so cool. And so, I don't know, I don't know what it is, you know, like I said. Oh, it's the, I think it's a combination of things, but I would say that is what the movie is. It's seducing you in the way that Jimmy character, Jimmy Stewart's character seduced, were being seduced by her. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I would, complete, I would completely agree with that. And like throughout every scene, yeah, you're hypnotized by her. Um, you really are. Yeah. Uh, Hypnosis is something that happens in this film. Well, like I said, during the driving sequences in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, we started talking about Midge and then got way off. Yeah, I was going to say, though, I, I think Mulholland Drive is a similar movie. I know we were just talking about Lynch, but I was like, don't you think that those are these are similar films? Yeah. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. That's, I, I know you love very, both of these movies that a lot. Vibe. I, was just, I was just like, this, these movies are connected in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I would think, say that yeah. although the plots are starkly different, I would say that the the overall mood of sort of romantic tension and uncertainty and fear and love uh, that are coursed through the veins of Vertigo are also present in Mulholland Drive, for sure. Yeah. Um, but we, we were talking about Midge... And I want to talk about how after Scotty saves uh, Judy from drowning, or I guess she's not Judy at that point. She's Madeline. After Scotty, And she after, wasn't really drowning. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And she can swim. Um, so after Scotty saves Madeline from drowning, uh, Midge is there stalking Johnny. And she's in her car and goes, Oh, Johnny-o. Was it a ghost? Was it fun? And I'm just, and then she just drives away. And I'm just like, Midge is such a creep. Now, she, now she's following him. That's one of the weirder like dream moments in the in the movie. Is like now the girl who's obsessed with the detective, who's obsessed with the woman, she's being a. <sighs> the girl who's obsessed with the detective, who's obsessed with the woman he's following, is now following him. That's bizarre. That is so weird. Uh, and it's just a one-off, too. It's just like, that shot just happens at, like, I can cue it up, 53 minutes. Because I want to get that line where she says, Oh, Johnny-o. Was it a ghost? Yeah. Well, now, Johnny-o. Was it a ghost? Was it fun? And then she drives away. And just like, what a, what a weirdo. 
I'm not exactly pro Midge. Jimmy Stewart. I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, they're both. Uh, I don't know. But... Jimmy Stewart never feels bad about like going after this other guy's wife. Like it does. You never see him like guilty about it. Just like. Uh, and also, I I did not think about this, but in the commentary, uh, Frequent points out he's like he's a necrophiliac. He's in love with a dead woman. And I was like, oh I God. never thought about. I never thought about that. I was like, I, I guess don't he, know he, about he, that. He, he kind of is in love with a dead woman. Um, uh, in, in those in I those think... in those early scenes when he's following her and falling in love originally. Yeah, um, I don't know. I think in a technical sense of the definition of necrophilia, uh, that would be being attracted to you know, physical matter that is inert and decaying, that's not the case. Uh, yeah. Yeah, in an abstract way, the woman is, quote-unquote, already dead or is that possessed is weird, by a dead though. woman. I there's That is such a stretch to call Jimmy Stewart a necrophiliac. That is sensationalism. I disagree. Ca- <laughs> categorically disagree. That's a ridiculous thing. I understood what he said. It would be weird, though, like, if you had these people that were we're in love with reenactors of like famous people that are dead I don't, I don't know what you would call that i'm sure somebody's into that though so, oh there's so a movie I'm... there's a movie about that called mr lonely by uh harmony corinne oh, okay anyway it's about pe- people that yeah there's with... like michael people that play michael jackson and marilyn monroe on you know on okay. the street to make money and it's about a, a, a group of people like that yeah anyway um Something that he meant that Freaka mentioned in that thing that you played was when they're in the forest, right? And yeah, I so love... it starts with the forest scene because I, I agree with him. That's okay. the scene that opens up into the dreamlike world, like a, a, officially almost, because it's like yeah. the gateway, and he follows her, and she looks at one of the he looks she looks at the map, and she's like, "I'm here, I'm dead." Like she goes out of her way to point out that she's dead. Like they see the mm-hmm. tree rings. Yeah. Me, here I was born and here I died. Yeah, here I died. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love the forest sequence in the Sequoia. I mean, I love the feeling of being so small under those Sequoia trees. I mean, you can, it's shot in such a way that they are dwarfed by these enormous trees. And, you know, on the bigger screen that you can watch this on, you get that sense of like, oh my God, these trees are enormous. Look at how small the Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak are compared to them. And so, yeah, it does add to the dreamlike quality. Well, that's that's kind of the, to me, that's like their start of their, I mean, you could say there was, a, there was other parts of their romance, but then they, he saves her and then she goes to his house, you know, of all the random things, you're following someone and they go to your house and then you're like, Oh, what are you doing here? You know, mm-hmm. and she's she's got the note for him, and and he's like, oh, I'm not doing anything. Let's just hang out. So that's like their note where their relationship, I guess, kind of officially starts, where they're choosing to just spend all day hanging out. Where Jimmy Stewart should feel like this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing this, but he doesn't hesitate, and he does it, and he kind of just he's in her clutches ever since. I would say since whenever when that sequence starts, and then. You know they're in the forest and then there's the shot uh, at the beach she she's got him from there on you know that's, oh yeah that's the moment um yeah, yeah the classic again the classic kiss in front of the breaking waves such a yeah. movie moment which has been emulated ever since no right after that is when he goes back to his place and or he goes to midges and i don't know if you want to pull this up 
it's an hour and six and a half minutes in. And it's one of my favorite. It's a totally nothing shot, but it's one of my favorites. Where Midge makes a painting of herself. One of the creepiest moments in the film, I think, is uh, Midge painted herself as Johnny O's object of affection. Which I think is just so cringe. And so Jimmy Stewart's like, that's not funny, Midge. Yeah. And leaves. And then this is one of the last times we see Midge, too, by the way. Might be the last time. She grabs her hair and says, it's like, stupid, stupid, stupid. And we we still feel for her because we realize how desperately she wants Jimmy Stewart. So that's one of the things. Even the character who I like the least in the film, there's this moment of like total vulnerability where she has done something she thinks to be cheeky and maybe a little passive aggressive, and it totally blows up in her face. And then she has this moment of like self-hatred, I guess. And you go, oh, Midge, you know, you dummy. We know, of course, that wouldn't have been charming to him. But for whatever reason, we still have sympathy for her. Yeah, I I have a different take of her. I'm not, I do not hate her at all. Um, I don't hate her. I just don't, I don't like her very much. I feel like she is just, you know, he should get with her. I I mean, I think. Oh my uh, God. No, I think Mitch is a creep, dude. I mean, she... I, I mean, he proposed to her, apparently. I mean, she broke off the engagement. Um, and well, that, was, she's an that was a long time ago. She's, she's an impressive artist. I mean, I'm impressed with the painting. Whatever. Um, I'm just like, how long did it take you to do it? And anyway, then, uh... one, of, one of my favorite shots in this scene <laughs> is he sets the camera on the you couch. You know, you would be lucky to have Motherfucker. somebody like Mitch. I'm just saying. <laughs> no way. I've had... He's committed. No, okay. I've had way better than Midge. Have they been able to paint like Midge? I did somebody who was a painter who was very good. Okay. That's way more interesting than some fucking hand-me-down impression of a painting that she saw one time. Well, she's Midge, just playing. She's just Midge sucks. Painting. Midge is Mid- awesome. Midge okay. sucks. One of my favorite shots in the movie, which is a pretty nondescript shot, at about an hour and six and a half minutes in, during one of my least favorite scenes where Midge has made a painting of herself, and Hitchcock just sets the camera on the couch. And it's just Jimmy Stewart sitting on the couch, and we get this great shot. Where? Round about. What was this, um, what was this desperate urge to see me? Well, I said in my note was, where are you? Doesn't sound very desperate to me. And, uh, a little undercurrent. Anyway, if you look at that shot, it's just, he just set the camera on the couch, and it's this strange, long shot. It's like a medium shot of Jimmy Stewart. That's all I did. I just wanted you to look at that shot and be like, do you like that shot too? Because for whatever, just photographically, I love this shot of the couch. Just the way he set the camera on the couch. I think it's a great shot. Yeah. Yeah. It happens several times. Anyway, I really like that shot. Uh, And then... What I really want to get to is if you go skip ahead to 18 and this is I caught something for anyone listening that wants to queue it up. Uh, it's at one hour, eight minutes, 39 seconds. And this is something I never saw before. I've seen this movie a dozen times and I had never noticed this. Wait. Here's the tragic midge. 
So, if you'll notice, this is a superimposition. Yeah, I was just watching it. Okay, what, that's what I thought you were talking it's about. It's yeah. very strange, it's right? Jimmy Stewart is ghostly. You can see the street and the lights behind him. I rewound and watched this several times last night, rewatching it. Because specifically, at... Yeah, at one at 108.38, you can literally see the light that's being reflected in the rain on the street. The light is going through his body. I mean, he is like a phantom walking along. I don't know why they did this, but this motherfucker hid a superimposition. It's so sneaky. I mean, Scotty just walks ghostly over a rain-soaked, like, early morning street crossing... I don't know if they just had that shot and they were like, oh, let's just put Jimmy Stewart walking in it. Let's just superimpose. Maybe nobody will notice. But it, as soon as I noticed it, I was obsessed with it. I loved it. And you can see he's not really there. Anyway, that's just something, again, this is an example of one of those movies where every time you watch it, you find something new. When I rewatched it last night, this blew my fucking mind. I don't know why they did this. <laughs> I don't know if it was something they just did in post, but it's clearly a superimposition of he's not really on that street. And I just love it. And I'd never noticed it until, you know, 12 hours ago. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say. It's not all the way through. But he's clearly, but it you can see the street through is, his yeah. body. Right? No, you're right. Yeah, when he's walking across... The street. And then, it's actually, you can see it before that, too, at exactly 108.38, you can see the light that's being reflected in the rain on the staircase in his torso. And it should be 10 feet behind him, but you can see this stream of light on his body that should be blocked by his body. Yeah. Right? Isn't about. that fucking um, wild? But, like, right after that, it's all black. It's like, what? Well, it's also because it's shot in such low light. But, yeah, 108.38, and it's very clear it's a superimposition. I I don't know. When I caught it last night, it blew my mind. I rewound it maybe four or five times and kept watching it. Um, I just can't believe it. That could very be easily be something on the lens. Though. How? Like a He's a body walking that. through. That. No, I'm saying the the little. I'm not. You see what he's walking through has like a little bit of light through it. It almost looks like. And that's fine. Of, uh, but that does not explain when he walks across the street. And oh, yeah. it's I'm clearly not, you can no, see the rest of the street behind him, like, which means the entire shot. There's no way that this is a two different shots of him walking, right? So it must be a superimposition. I don't think I mean, that that piece of light on the stair no, is I, there's just, on the camera. There's just levels of superimposition. It's very it. curious yeah. is all I'm saying. I noticed okay. it and it's fucking weird. Yeah, no, for sure. So, but anyway. Um, yeah, no, I did not. Did like not I said, I've seen it a dozen times and I didn't notice it till just last night and it blew my mind. When you brought it up though, when I played it, I did notice it. I guess the only thing I'm, I'm thinking is like there are there are things that they add to the uh, 
like they act, like they draw on the negatives. Yeah, I'm not pretending. I, I I'm know. not pretending because to it's understand. It's just weird. To, weird to have it. This I'm saying yeah. isn't this bizarre? No, I would rather not know. I yeah. Why did they decide to do a superimposition of Johnny just walking across an empty street? I don't know, but it adds a level of mystery and a level of uncertainty of like and a ghostliness, quite literally. Um, anyway, it's after this point where the movie takes its really full dark turn and we get to the centerpiece of like the trial scene, which you've talked about is brutal uh, and also very odd because it's just a bunch of men in a room, right? That's where it comes off so dreamlike, where you like you could have nightmares like that, and it's like you are just kind of surprised, like why is he right. on trial? Like, can you imagine if there was? Why is there a trial about a suicide in the first? Isn't place? it like, just to like levels of what? Maybe it's is just this? like a legal. It, yeah. It's not really a trial, but maybe it's like a legal procedural thing where it's like, oh, we have to say that this body was either a suicide or a murder. This guy was with her when she committed suicide. Seems to be his fault, but we can't really blame him. Let's go over the facts. I don't know, but I mean, you have you, it has jurors. I mean, you would that's true. Somebody would investigate that. And but again, not taking not. place in a courtroom. <laughs> Get jurors in. taking place in an empty room. <laughs> right. That's why I'm saying it's so it's so absurd. Right. It's very dreamlike because it's like, yeah, what on what what world are jurors coming in to? just be like he does bear some responsibility but we can't charge him yeah like, he it, just says it's unfortunate like it's, about it's a little kafka yeah yeah <laughs> um but that's the thing is yeah it's like where you'd feel really guilty about something and you're just like i can imagine mm -hmm. people coming in and lecturing me for this even though i've not committed but that's crime. the thing you is know? this is one of those movies mm -hmm. that makes you think that like the very fabric of reality is a farce like so many moments of fantasy happen in this movie that it makes you just question everything. Um, and then, of course, right after the trial, there's the dream sequence, right? The amazing animation sequence, which no matter how many times I see this, I never see coming. It's so out of nowhere, this dream sequence that's fully animated, and we sort of rehash the first half of the film during it. Um, I mean, I often forget after the dream sequence at about an hour and 27 minutes in he's basically catatonic like they're coming and visiting him and he's like not even speaking right like i forget that happens every time maybe i won't because i'm saying it out loud now but anyway he's, he's destroyed. destroyed by this i mean you can't really blame him it's mortifying I mean, it's it's a traumatic vertigo, event vertigo has killed two people now and this, this yeah. last one was somebody that he was close to and wanted to ultimately protect yeah. and then and saw it coming so it is kind of like insane where it's just like he knew that she was suicidal he tried to save her before she went here and he still couldn't stop her so it is like and to me that's something where i would get into the concept of, of obsession and fixation of how um you don't have control as presented in this film like jimmy stewart this is all happening to him you know, he's not making any mm -hmm. choices. He he feels compelled to do everything he's doing. Like in a dream. And, um, you don't really know why you're doing it, but you know that you're being urged on in some way, right. right? And that's one thing that, again, happens to me every time I watch it is, you know, the movie starts and you have all this background of the detective and, oh, I need you to follow my wife and all this stuff. 
But then the movie really starts at about 45 minutes in when Scotty finally meets Madeline after having been tailing her for a while. And then the romance really starts, right? But there's like tears to the narrative, like like layers or levels in a dream, where like then again the movie really starts at like an hour and a half in when he meets Judy. Right? And so it's like the movie keeps getting us back to this like there's like this cyclical thing like you would find in a Lynch movie, right? Where it's like, okay, the movie starts, we watch it for 45 minutes, wait, now he meets the woman? Who I, I don't even, I don't want to call her a femme fatale, although I guess that's technically what she is. But it's like the movie restarts two or three times. Well, he... And every time I see it, it's like jarring to me. Of like, oh my god, yeah, that's right, this other third of the movie. I forgot about or not I forgot it you know what you know what I'm saying you get that feeling of like oh my god yeah the rest of the story I I, I forgot because you get so swept up in it I had not and I think I don't think it was this commentary but it was somebody talking about Hitchcock and how he wrote and it was from these episodes so he would come up with like an episode that happened and then he would build them and you know he would have like maybe four or five episodes Mm -hmm. in a film and ever since I heard that analogy like it really does apply here where this is feels like separate movies kind of like fit together like they don't Mm. the way that he cuts them apart like you could see it's like okay this sequence has to happen so where is that going to go and then you know you can see him kind of sorting it out and figuring it out because he doesn't write the scripts he hires other like this is based on a book loosely and then he came up with the story really the Mm -hmm. episodes and the plot of it and then he hires somebody to come in and write the actual dialogue. In this film, there's not a lot of dialogue, and do the script. Um, but, I mean, that's kind of what I would say. But I would say, think about some of his other films. They are also very episodic, where it's like, I think Psycho is one I definitely think applies to, where how that whole film is just one short movie after another, almost. Um, it's it's not, it doesn't feel connected in the way that you would think of um, traditional films um, having uh, like a, you know, rising action and climax and you know you don't see that in a, in a film like this even though there's definitely a climax at the end but um, and that's be- the, yeah I, I yeah, totally like, understand it's because it moves in like waves almost like I said like right, the layers of right, a dream you, see... you know it's like it's like right. when the dream turns into a different setting all of a sudden and it becomes weirdly something else right and it has that that way of moving very like what's the wave like the narrative like undulates as as we go along and we're just floating along with it you know north by northwest i think is the other one that i would say definitely does this where it's like there's so much plot that happens in north by northwest that you're just like how have we gotten through this amount like like you see that movie start and then you goes and then it gets kind of wrapped up and it's like 20 minutes. And it's like that's a whole movie that you just went through and it, it only so and this movie does that too. It's like you have him in the trauma of seeing the person die and then whatever happened which he would probably have some kind of hearing. He's a mm-hmm. police officer. Um he watched he would have some kind of hearing, but we don't see any of that. We just we don't even see how he got saved. We just see him experiencing the trauma, then it skips to him like moving on from it and then ready for the next thing and that's where it's like 
you see the Midge character as just an exposition vehicle. Yeah. You're like, oh, he just needs someone to talk to, to about to these nudge things, him. You could argue Midge kind of nudges him. She's kind of right. nags at him a little bit. You know, she's that element. Well, I don't know. What do you what do you think he na- she nags at him out? Just I feel like she's the only person that's like trying to help him. Like I don't know if he has a lot of other friends. She's yeah. trying to ground him in reality. Yeah. He's, he's wanting to stay in the fantasy. Yeah. But um I would say rear window, there, there's another you know, you have the female character in that, um, as a way for him to kind of just talk about what he's experiencing. So I'm like it's not unhitch Hitchcock like to have a character yeah. like this, the female best friend to kind of get mm-hmm. through. Um, the exposition sequences for us, the audience. Um, sequences that I, I would say, you know, a lot of times you talk about a sequence like that, be like, oh, that's, you know, exposition or whatever. But they are great scenes. Um, Midge having her agenda for him, him seeming just kind of unwell, mm-hmm. I guess, in all the sequences and goofy in a way that makes him seem. I don't know if simple is the right word, but like just that sequence, a little sad. Maybe that's the best way to describe it. All the characters are tragic in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. But like the way that he's like, oh, I think I can actually fix my vertigo. Mm-hmm. That he, And he tries to like step on the oh, chair. Yeah. And she's just kind of like, and she's like, no, I asked my doctor. Well, she tries to help though, away. too. She gets him the step ladder. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's that great shot. Right. There's a wonderful shot where like as he's doing it, they shoot him just barely from below as he's going up the steps. But then behind him, the uh, the curtains on the windows are in tiers like steps. I love that. Right. There's so many little touches that add to the psychology of things. And that are sets that they are made in a lot of paintings behind those sets. That's why I'm like, you got to give credit to all the collaborative efforts here. Because, yeah, you are looking at... Um, sets that meticulously were made where all the, the close-ups and those scenes are being are taking place in. I, I, I will say this, though, while we're just talking about sets, the set that he goes down to jump in and save her has always just struck me as, like, not looking right. like uh, what, what I imagine underneath a, a bridge would look like. Um, and But at the same time, it's like, it, it works because it's this dreamlike world. Like, it doesn't have to be reality. But that said, you're just I'm just always just looking at that. I'm just like, how how is that possibly what it looks like under a bridge? Of course, this was um, uh, over 50 years ago, so bridges are different, I guess. Yeah, so I mean, that could be possible. I'm like, he would have gone there in person and looked at it and then made a sketch. So I'm like, I yeah, I don't know why it's as authentic, inauthentic looking as it is, because I mean, very realistically Hitchcock was there physically and saw what it looked like and then drew his sketch after that or at least had someone else take a picture that he looked at like looked at which I don't know if he did that or not I know Kubrick apparently never wanted to um, go anywhere physically so he would have people take um, shots of everything that he was doing and then he would build like 3d images around his house of of real places i, I don't know if you knew this or not just because he didn't want to leave his house so he would just rebuild whatever you yeah, know i did know kubrick's place and it's in uh, yeah. the uk right yeah he's a place and he yeah yeah and a lot of UK. eyes wide shut takes place in new york was built and filmed there I, I still you know years later after watching eyes wide shut when i found out that that is not new york 
that they rebuilt New York meticulously. And then I started looking more closely. I was like looking at the street signs and I was like, that's not a street in New York. And I started knowing, I was like, this motherfucker built New York. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's a different, let's not, we're going to have to talk about Eyes Wide Shut eventually. But, uh, so if you go to the Blu-ray on chapter 31 and then rewind about two minutes. Uh, so I want to talk about the, the, the second major kiss. There's the first kiss in front of the breaking the waves. And then there's the other really important kiss where the camera com- does a complete 360 revolve around them. But something very interesting happens during that. So I have it queued up to about 156 and 20 or 30 seconds. So about an hour and 56 minutes and a half. And you get this. So okay, go to 31, chapter 31, and then rewind it about a minute and a half. Okay. And something really cool happens visually during this spin 360 around them making out. So they're kissing, they're kissing, the camera is revolving around, and then what? In the background, the background changes and we see Scotty's imagination and memory of of where? Where is this? And we see him being kissed, figuring it out, being uncertain of like, wait a second, is this the same woman? Did you notice this? And then here's my favorite part. So keep spinning. His imagination's gone. We're back in the room. He gives back into the kiss and then... This, to me, typifies the whole movie. We spin all the way 360, we're back to the window with the green light in the curtain. The music swells, and he brings up the contrast, so the green completely blows out the frame, and they're just in front of like a green screen. And green throughout the whole movie represents Madeline and fantasy and all this stuff. And I, that's another shot last night where I just rewatched it a couple times because I was like, holy shit. He spins 360 around them while they're kissing. Halfway through, it becomes a projection in the background and we see Scotty's imagination and his uncertainty and him figuring out part of the mystery. And then back to reality, he gives back into the fan- fantasy and he gives back in fully. And then the green which has signified the fantasy the whole movie just blows out in full contrast in the background it's an amazing fucking shot (laughs) it's amazing uh yeah anyway i just wanted to rewatch that and talk about it but like also my question is what is that shot in the background the projection what is that that his imagination what is that i don't even know oh are you serious? Wait, yeah, uh, maybe where we're is talking that? about different things. What's that location? That's at the that's at the mission. That's the makeout he had okay. with her right before she died, supposedly. So that's okay. what he's thinking about. Yeah, so they, he goes back to the mission and recreates. See, that. I thought it was yeah, because right after this, he drives her to the mission instead of going to Ernie's. Right. Because um, that's such a weird sequence too. Because they first go to the mission and then they hang out by the um, the. What are they called? Uh, the horse carriages. They hang out by the horse carriages, and that's when she kisses him. And she's like, uh, she says that she loves him or something. They have their final kiss there before she runs up the mission. 
Um, and that is an odd sequence because it's like, what are you guys doing? Like, they're just ma- once again doing make believe, pretending. You know, mm-hmm. the, the carriages aren't going anywhere. They're just sitting there. And then there's even a horse that's fake that she like pretend he pretends is real right. in that sequence too. So it's like, which is that sequence for whatever reason, like I'm I because I've seen carriages like that. I guess at uh, at different places. So I'm like I've been places like that before. I, I don't know why, but that, that I always remember that sequence really well because mm-hmm. I've, I've sat in old carriages and I think a lot of us have seen um, places like that and right. kind of had that experience of pretending to drive an old carriage. Uh huh. Um. But yeah, I don't know. I just I wanted to bring that up because it's something I love. The I've already described it a couple times, but yeah, the classic camera swoop around the the kissing lovers. But we see in the background Scotty's imagination and him figuring it out and his memory of kissing her in at the mission. And then it goes back to the room. It goes full green, and it's just pure fantasy cinema all of a sudden. And that's kind of like I said before. What I love about it is like it's one of those movies that makes you think like the very fabric of reality is a farce and that's a rare thing and like not all movies can do that anyway we're finally at the ending uh so she then yeah. put she yeah. then puts so on the let's, necklace let's talk right? about the ending so yeah. she she puts a, after this beautiful kiss they're getting ready to go to dinner to go to ernie's and she puts on the necklace carlotta's necklace which is the final clue that says all the suspicions and all the detective figuring out the mystery that Scotty has had this whole time while dating Judy now is now solidified. You have the dead woman's necklace. You're a nostalgic, sentimental idiot. You've given me the clue that I finally needed to solve this mystery. I know that you're her, right? And then he takes her on the drive. And this is where, like I said earlier, he goes to recreate his own trauma right and and he even says and he's getting you know for the last half hour he gets in creepier and creepier and more intense and more obsessive right and he says a line that bothers me every time he says it so they're driving and she's like we're going quite far right and he says there's one final thing i have to do and then i'll be free of the past and it's just every time I'm like, because one, you can never really be free of the past, right? But like his obsessive thing is now coming to a head, right? And that line just gets me every time, you know, one more thing I have to do and then I'll be free of the past. And every time I like, I like cringe a little bit. I'm like, oh, no, you won't. Um, <laughs> well, it's also because it's like you're a crazy person now. Like, we right. can't, he's lost we, his mind. Yeah, we can't even pretend like maybe he's has any kind of grip. No, no, no. The su- the suddenness of this, I think I would just speak to with the episodic approach because it's like you see these little different sections and you have the section of him recreating his love for Carlotta or the woman, mm-hmm. the, the vision that he's obsessed with. So he's recreating it again and she's got to be like going through it and it's like the gray suit i love the detail that you see the gray suit and mm-hmm. then he makes her buy it again um but she's got to be going through that or but she's like whatever so you see them kind of sort of they they're doomed not to be together you you know yeah. watching this that this relationship's not going to work but whatever they've kind of gotten back together and he's recreated her to be the girl in his mind and then it breaks 
immediately <laughs> right after yeah, yeah. it happens. And it, and well, that's like, the thing. Every time, every time they give in to the fantasy fully, which is why I love that that three sixty kiss, where it goes full fantasy, total green in the background. After that, then the necklace happens. Reality comes back into punching. That the further that that either of them go into fantasy, the harder reality tries to break in, right? Well, well, that's why it's like I would say this next section like feels even though it's the end of the movie and you feel like kind of out of sort for how long like well, if you look at the clock as you watch this it will blow your mind because you, <laughs> when you remember the film you don't put it in the sequence but you're just like okay so the movie kind of restarts when there's about 40 minutes left and then uh-huh. you know, recreate, yeah. they, all the creepy stuff happens. And then the ending of the movie also is equally sudden mm-hmm. because it's just all of a sudden he's like, I got to recreate this. You know, I'm going up there. I'm taking you this. Right. And and it, it seems out of nowhere. Like, even though you've been kind of going along with it or whatever, but he he becomes cringeworthy creepy as he drags her up the stairs shouting at her you know well that's because uh, again this is someone who's been strategically and and brutally manipulated throughout the whole film this is someone who has been gaslighted who has been manipulated who's been made a pawn in a murder right and not only used his fear uh and his love against him and so it's like he's losing his mind because he knows that he's right. And if he's right, that means that he has been severely fucked over and severely manipulated. I mean, Scotty is the victim in this film, despite the fact that other people die. I mean, he's the real patsy, you know? I mean, and it's like, I mean, he even says when he goes full psychotic, when he's dragging her up the stairs, right, uh, back to the traumatic event, and he says, you're my second chance. I want to stop being haunted. And that's a crazy thing to say. I want to stop being haunted. Because he is. Because that's what happens when somebody gets gaslit or severely manipulated for a long period of time. Is you lose your sense of reality. Right? That's what gaslighting is. You, you become, your reality become thrown in question. Right? And so he's really a fragile person at this point. So of course... It may seem in the course of things, oh, it comes out of nowhere. But if you're noticing how fragile his psychology is, as soon as he sees that necklace, fuck this. We're going all out. I'm taking you back to the scene of the crime. I'm doing it now. My entire life, you know, the entirety of this movie has been leading up to this moment. And now I know I'm right. And I've lost my fucking mind because of it. Because he's been, his reality has been questioned the entire film. And it's like you wonder what he was planning, right? You were like you wanted to find the truth out. Did you want to kill her or or what? No, what no, no. Planning. I'm just asking. What do you think? What do, what was he planning? Oh no, I think because he's he wanted he wanted the truth, shouting at her. He, yeah, he wants the truth. He wants he the doesn't, truth. He doesn't say and he wants it. her to say it out loud, and because he needs reassurance of after your reality is questioned and you've been manipulated for an extended period of time you need someone else to confirm that you were right all along or that this reality is the case right and so that's what he wants but he's so desperate for it that he has this sort of like it's like a righteousness 
uh, it's like as he figures it out, he's telling her and he's also conquering his own fear of vertigo, right? But his righteous anger at being tricked by the one he loved. I mean, that's another thing that we have, we didn't even mention during this whole ending sequence of him yelling at her and dragging her up the stairs back to the scene of the crime is he tells her the story of herself as Madeline to Judy. And it, it's kind of like a darker version of Paris, Texas, right? Where the former lover is telling the other lover the, their story, but in a way fucking darker way, because <laughs> this is a much darker movie than Paris, Texas. But anyway, this all leads up to just the most devastating ending in history where they get to the top and then even though he's demanding that she tells the truth, please tell me the truth, please tell me my reality is real and that you've constructed this fantasy and that I've been fooled. Be honest, please, with me. And then the nun comes out and says, I heard voices. And that scares Kim Novak. She screams. Oh, before the nun comes out, he's demanding the truth from her. And then he gives back into the fantasy and kisses her. Right. And there's a moment when it's like, can they be together? Yes. And then, the, then you don't see, she doesn't get scared. The nun doesn't talk yet. Uh, she just sees the image. And I'm going to play it. I got to get up. I'm going to play it. Because it's like, you see the image of the nun come up. And it is frightening, frightening to an extreme level. I'll, I'll just say that. It is one of the scariest images, I would say, in all of cinema. It's not something you expect to happen. That's for fucking sure. It looks otherworldly yes i mean i definitely think she represents death and i think that mm -hmm. you like see that in this character. but she also represents like the the reality of his insanity right again one of the only things she says is i heard voices which is a right. very right. weird thing to say well she's like i was work and then she kind of breaks into oh reality. no it makes sense in, in yeah. context <laughs> it makes perfect sense but a ghostly figure wearing a hood coming towards you yeah. in the top of a bell tower and then she just says i heard voices in kind of a creepy way very it is it's bizarre because it, to me it's the shadow that really makes it creepy is the way that you can't see it as a human being when it approaches through the stairs and so that's where yeah i have it queued up here yeah. well it's also like the drape of the nunhood right and it gives her this like ghostly shape yeah, for sure. Two okay, two oh seven twenty nine is where I am. I think that's where they kiss for the last time. Mm -hmm. Like you can see the sweat pouring down his face. Then the image comes up, and the way and see this is where it is kind of uh, fantastical because the way that she rises mm -hmm. looks that's what's creepy. It's her moving up. Yeah, yeah. You know, the stairs where it's like no human being moves like that. Right, right. You know, in her face, you catch a little bit of it, but her face looks like old leathery. So mm -hmm. it looks like some kind of demonic thing. And then she just raises into complete shadow where you can't see any features. And then she's in that shadow. You can't see her. Kim Novak sees it, screams, then she dies. And then the woman steps into the light and you can see that it's a nun and then they have that dialogue. And so Kim Novak, you know, she responds to that image that she sees. Right. Um, like, and if you you're know, holding, if you're holding and hugging someone and they suddenly turn away and scream, of course you let go. And it's because he let go that she falls. 
that's one of this one of the scenes where I'm just like, how did she fall so far? Because <laughs> it looks like several steps, and I'm like, I guess you were really holding. I mean, you buy it in the movie, right? Uh, so I'll I'll go ahead and play it so we have the audio because yeah. I I really like what she says because she again recommits her love for him and says, well, I'll just let her say it. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You can play the audio for this because the music as well is really frightening too in this in the moment yeah i was safe when you found me there was nothing that you could prove when i saw you again i i could run away i loved you so i walked into danger let you change me because i loved you and i, I wanted you that's why please you love me now keep me safe please. it's too late it's too late there's no bringing your back and the kiss <laughs> so the sound I noticed out and then yeah, yeah I noticed just ahead. now he says something he says it's too late you can't bring her back and when you think about that, that's an insane thing to say because she's standing right there and the person he wants to bring back never existed. It was a character she was playing. Bizarre statement. And the movie's full of those. It's too late you can't bring her back. She never existed in the first place. She's a fantasy. Just, and then, you know, again, she falls, the most devastating ending in history. And the thing is, like, again, I've seen this so many times and even last night when he rewatched it, like when she falls, our heart drops, you know, but for Scotty, it's like for not for having not only lived it twice, but for have for like having recreated his own trauma, for having like doomed his own love and accidentally murdered her. Right. And uh, so we we feel like the full weight of Scotty's loss. And it's like having lost it twice and knowing that the second time it's his own fault, right? And it ends with him just looking down. And his fear of vertigo is conquered. He's looking down and he's fine. He's looking down at the dead body of the woman he loved that he accidentally killed. And his fear of vertigo is conquered, but at the cost of, you know, the loss of the one that he loved the most, having to fall. Right. And so it's just like all of that, all these layers and all this weight is just dumped on you in the last 10 seconds of the movie. And then the movie just fades out, ends, and you, the audience is just left with this awful weight. This like enormous weight, which is Scotty's sense of, of loss and the fact that it's his fault. Right. And that's so, that's fucked. That's, a, that's such a mean thing to do to the audience on Hitchcock's part. But it, but it's also it's it's beautiful, right? I mean, it's it's tragic, but anyway, yeah, that's how I feel about the ending. <laughs> I'm getting worked up just thinking about it. Obviously, it's just I want to rewatch me, the it's, movie. It's <laughs> the image of the inevitable death and like no chance for happiness or redemption. Right, it's doomed. I, I I, it's, they're they're it tragic is. figures. They're doomed. Right, and he doesn't. He just, and it's almost just like you're never gonna be with the the girl. She's dead. <laughs> this is like there's no chance for this relationship. Uh, 
And yeah. that's why, again, one of the last things he says is one of the craziest things he says. Right. You can't bring her sense. back. I can't bring yeah. her back. She never existed. You're crazy. Right? Yeah. And then he loses the real thing, the real person, not the fantasy. And that is devastating. And it you just think... it punches me in the heart every time I see it. And it's like I start the movie and I get all swept up and it's so hypnotic and dreamy and lovely and I'm loving it. And then the movie ends and I just feel wrecked. And it's that's one of the reasons it's like a powerful film is it does that to me every time. I mean, there's a part of me, though, that feels that their relationship is... I mean, I definitely feel this way. Their relationship's doomed. So I guess the fact that it ends like this abruptly... I don't find it, I guess, as devastating because it's just kind of like, what was the hope for this relationship to last? As oh, no, I know? don't. It's they're heading towards, you know, OK, yeah, but it's still devastating. Yeah. All right. I'm not suggesting I would prefer an alternate ending where they've patched things up and, or, and have a happy ending. No, absolutely. I'm saying having, having kids, you know, making sandcastles. Okay. When I say it's devastating, like I said, it's because we, the audience takes on the full weight of Scotty's loss. And also all the weird yarn, the web that's been weaved of having to live it through it twice, having to be traumatized and then re-traumatized by it, knowing that it has, it's his fault the second time, all that adds to the weight of how devastating it is. Uh yeah, no, I don't think there's any parallel universe where this romance turns out with a happy ending. There's no way. I don't think that there's any emotionally mature situation where they sit down and they talk about, okay, here's what happened, here's how I felt about it, well, here's how I felt about you gaslighting and manipulating me for months, and then pretending you died, and then continuing to lie to me after I re-met you. I don't think that conversation ever happens if she doesn't die, Okay. I'm, I mean, I do have this treatment from you titled Vertigo 2. Um, it's not. Yeah. That's not what it's called. It's called Vertigos. <laughs> that's an S, Vertigo. not a 2. Okay. Uh, it's I plural. Just, it seemed like it's like Alien and to... Aliens. Vertigo. <laughs> Vertigos. I, I would love to see a version of this where Jimmy Stewart like then finds another woman that he gets obsessed it's, with. Well, here's the other thing. I wrote, I wrote Vertigos, uh, which is Vertigo with an S after it. I wrote that after I saw Million Dollar Baby. And I thought, what if... I've never seen Million Dollar Baby, by the way, but I, I know what it is, right? And I was like, what if she didn't die when she fell? And then she's just like, her legs and arms are in casts. And Jimmy Stewart is nursing her back to health. And then they have that emotionally mature conversation where they're both very honest with each other. They talk about their feelings. They talk about how they made each other feel. And they work through it, you know? And I think maybe, maybe I'm too optimistic, you know, maybe this is rose-colored glasses, but I don't know. I think if she hadn't died, if she had just been paralyzed or something, they could have had a wonderful retirement. And then years later, they could be on the beach and he, they could be like, ah, remember how we met? Crazy, right? And then, you know, it's beautiful, beautiful stuff. So Vertigo's, Vertigo, but of Vertigo's course, three. Kim Novak Vertigo's continued where he finds another woman that he obsessed with. That doesn't cycle exist. Start, I didn't write cycle that. Starts again. I didn't write yeah. that. Anyway, no, I'm, I'm adding. I'm editing that one. So it's like you know, okay. he's still he's just like. Well, Kim she Novak dyes her hair it dyes her hair brown, and he's like, oh, no, it's not gonna work. Out. Well, on. well, Kim Novak is still alive, so I could still do it. I think Jim Carrey would play a good Jimmy Stewart. 
in Vertigo's. Vertigo's to the beach. Uh, anyway. Any, Vertigo's go to the beach. Vertigo's to the beach. Um, anything else? Anything else we want to talk about? I think I've gone through all my notes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like this is this is what we we barely touched the surface. I know. Um, I know. I want to rewatch but, it honestly. Like for the last twenty minutes, when I got all when I got all amped up about talking about the last twenty minutes of the movie, I was just like, I just want to. Re- I think I might watch it tonight again. Honestly, I don't blame you. I'm probably not, but I mean, this is a film you could just throw on at any time and just you know watch yeah. it because it's also a film that just like works works for a great screensaver. Like you just turn yeah. it on mute and just watch it. It's so it's just beautiful. There. Oh yeah, yeah we haven't visuals. talked at all about San Francisco and just the way how he makes San Francisco an iconic haunted place, right? So there's that. Yeah, I, I saw. Yeah, I feel like there is a lot. I'm, to me, the the visuals are just that's uh, when I think about films like this, I do think, oh, something like Mulholland Drive or something like Eyes Wide Shut. I mean, to me, those movies are uh, similar in the sense that they depend so much on the visuals. Um, so much of the story is told um, through just seeing these beautiful locations and seeing how everybody's dressed. And um, yeah, uh, there's not. I was talking to my wife um, about this because she also just loves this film and loves the clothes so much. And we were just mm-hmm. talking. It's like how mm-hmm. many how many movies do you see these days that are? I mean, there are. I was trying to think. I was like, I was like, I think Phantom Thread is the last movie I saw that I was just really blown away by the um, costume design. I mean, they're out there. Yeah, I guess just not. I mean, unless you're doing a movie set in this time period, I guess. But right. You know, it's, it's, well, I think it will movies, come... Movies look too dirty now. That's what I'm saying. People uh-huh. are just dressed like trash people in most movies. I don't I, see the, kinda, these gorgeous gray suits. Kind of anyway. disagree, but okay. Um, <laughs> does this movie qualify as a couples arguing theme? Uh, I, I mean, the fact that we are, we're doing that season next, I did kind of... I was like, eh, no, I would say no, because I would say... Only this the ending... More, Right. Is a, yeah, this is more of like the fantasy movie where it's like Eyes Wide Shut counts because he is arguing with his wife in like the real world in that movie um, so much. So, yeah, even though they are similar movies about obsession, um, mm-hmm. I w- yeah, I don't know if I would qualify this one. Right. Um, so, well, we only have, I think, one more episode after this. For the end of the season and then we start the next season so i i get to pick the next one right you picked vertigo that is correct um well before we get into that i think it will come as no surprise to anyone that to me my personal rating this movie is a star it's a movie victory that's not the right sound effect <laughs> okay i just thought that would work for this okay. well, all right i'm gonna i'm gonna okay. I'll redo it this is a star inside of a cloud like it's in super mario Okay, that's still the wrong sound effect. Oh, it's like supposed uh, to clap, yeah. maybe some clapping. All right, there we go. <laughs> movie victory. It's this a movie victory. Absolutely a movie victory. Uh, what's your re- personal rating? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a. It's a star. It's a movie victory. Out of the park. Um, yeah, there's no question. This is gotta be, you know. I think we talked about this before. It's it's gotta. Be, it's definitely in my top ten movies of all time. Um, is it? It probably could is in the top five, depending on whenever I make the list. 
Uh, it's a movie you can see infinite amount of times and just throw it on again and still love it. Um, even though it's inherently flawed in a lot of ways that I've talked about a little bit, I would say it's perfect. You know, it's a film mm-hmm. that I would, I would, I would just say it's yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect for what it is, what it does. Um, even though it's got a lot of like inconsistencies and it's not like a movie like Chinatown, which I would say is perfect for completely different reasons. Um, yeah. Um, I was thinking, I even thought the the word perfect at some point last night, I don't remember which scene, but there was some scene in Vertigo when I rewatched it last night that I was just like, that's perfect. It's totally perfect. You know? And it was just like the way he cut one shot after another. And I was just like, Oh, so smooth, you know? And I was just like, perfect. So good. I just appreciate it every time I watch it. Like, uh, there's moments where I'm, like, not taken out of the movie, but I'm suddenly in awe of, like, man, he really hit a stride. You know, Hitchcock made so many movies, and he has different periods that are, you know, where he really hits a stride. And this is, like, he was just firing on all cylinders. And like you said, also had a great team where everyone was at the top of their game and all just brought their A game to this movie. But my real question, David, is what does the science have to say? Yeah, and I and I guess to just follow along, and I'm not going to go, but, like, the reason I think this movie sets above the rest of Hitchcock films is the personal nature. It's like in a film like this, it's about this topic that I think Hitchcock knows really well. Mm-hmm. And it's obsession and watching other people, which is something that we're doing watching the film. So, like, the... And I'm not original to make this observation, but the voyeurism that is at the heart of this film, where you have so many people watching other people and being obsessed about these fantastical ideas and versions of reality that aren't quite true, this is the heart of something that I think Hitchcock dealt with himself, and that's why I think it comes out in the film, and that's what I think people respond to, because I think we all deal with this attraction to voyeurism on a certain level even though sure to different extents that we actually experience it there's parts of us that want to watch other people and you know mm-hmm. and you can see he dealt with this in rear window obviously but oh, also yeah. in other films too rear um, window is a stark example of voyeurism it's like very out out and sent front and center yeah absolutely but i but i would say he takes less risks in that film um with the personal nature um where this one it's yeah it's got those moments that are just come through so authentic authentic with so much authenticity uh the science this is no big surprise but i ran it through the scientific rating and it is also a movie victory a star star yes (laughs) it is a star this you, is um, one of the. I think this is the only movie where we agree across the board. Triple star. That's, triple star. You, hear, you heard it here first. Vertigo, a three star movie. Three star. Yeah, that sounds bad though. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Three out of two. Three out of a possible two stars. Three out of yeah. Uh, uh, and, so in that uh, way, it's also a movie about movies. So, so it's like it, it. It's it's those levels of different types of. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. That's People great. have already talked, but but that's why I think movie makers in general are obsessed with this concept is because movie makers on some level have voyeurism as a part of their personalities because mm-hmm. they're all people watchers, you know. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, because we saw so many directors talk about how this is one of their favorite films. So part of me wants to veer into 
the couple's arguing season, even though we have a couple episodes left. But tell me if you there is a movie that came out the same year, 1958, that also stars Kim Novak and Jimmy Stewart. And it's much more lighthearted. It's called Bell, Book, and Candle. Have you ever have you heard of this? Have you seen it? No, I haven't. And there are there are some weird similarities to it. Uh, I'm just going to set it up. So it's it's much more lighthearted. Like Jack Lemmon is in it. It's kind of a silly movie, but in it, Kim Novak plays a witch, and her family do witchcraft, and she falls in love with Jimmy Stewart, and Jimmy Stewart is gradually finding out that she's a witch. And it, again, made the same year with both of them. And actually, Kim Novak was cast in it, and they didn't know who to cast. She was like, oh, I just worked with Jimmy Stewart on Vertigo. You should get him. I love Jimmy. And then they did this movie together. Um, and it's it's just a lot of fun. Way more lighthearted, nowhere near as dark as Vertigo. It's sort of like the flip side of like if, if Vertigo were a light comedy, it would be Bell, Book, and Candle. Uh, so I was thinking about doing that. Yeah, I mean, I want to see it just hearing about it and loving old movies, as you know. It's, so I'm it's super cute. On board for a for an old movie. Yeah, I was thinking of maybe doing one of the couples arguing, but that would kind of keep it as heavy as Vertigo was. I feel like maybe we should just lighten the mood a little bit, and this is a good segue because literally same same actors, totally different vibe. But yeah, let's do Bill well, and Candle. Well, the- Okay, well, that means that I'll do the first pick for the couples arguing. A lot of pressure, um, but I have some movies I that I definitely want to do. I don't know who's going to end up picking Eyes Wide Shut. I guess one of us will. I guess it just depends on we'll um, who figure gets, that who out in the, in the stream of things. Yeah. Um, I definitely, we have not talked about the couples arguing thing, so there's a couple films I definitely want to do. I know we talked about Eyes Wide Shut, we talked about Before Midnight. I, I will definitely want to do Certified Copy. And okay. have, you, have you ever heard of the film Upstream Color? Yes. You've told me about it. I've watched parts it was, of it. I... It was my favorite film for whatever year it came out. It was like 2012, 2013, something like that. So that's another good couples arguing one, although there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, Betty Blue, which I brought up before. Anyway, I'm just throwing out ideas. We'll figure it out as the weeks go on I'm going to send you alright I just sent you an email that with that has Bell Book and Candle in it because I already have a download of it so okay and I mean of course you can probably get it at the library too if you want but it's always nice to just get actual DVDs and if I can because then it's like I don't know it's, it's more fun for whatever reason to watch and then right. if there's any footage uh, from it um, yeah, I'm just going to say go with whatever you're thinking for the couples arguing. I, I think I have some I definitely want to do, um, but as far as what you decide to do, um, you know, I would just, it's fine. I'm not going to be, we can do whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's just I do... feel like this is a this is a big topic, though, so I guess try to, I don't know how many episodes we're going to do, but try to do the ones, you know, you really want to do, I guess. Right. Well, I feel like we do 10 episodes a season now, so. Okay. That's fine. Um, All right. But yeah, okay. Vertigo, movie victory, three stars. Three out of possible two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, goodbye. And um, Bell Book and Candle next week. Mm -hmm. Exciting. Yep. 
I'm excited to see another Kim Novak and Jimmy Stewart. Uh, Me too. Kim Novak right. is also really great in it. All right. Uh, should I just hit stop, or are you going to hit play? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. All right. I'm, I'm stopping now, then, I guess. Or no? 